Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. We're back, and let's go right back to the phones. And joining us from Discount Fishing Tackle is Austin Parr. Good morning, Austin. Good morning, Terry. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. You know, it's, I guess you could probably say this every year, because, you know, we get our preconceived notions about how the fishing season is going to go, how the climate and the weather and the seasons are going to affect the movements and the behavior of the fish. And I don't know how many years we say, you know, they're not quite following the rule book. Well, first of all, those fish have failed to attend any of my seminars, so they don't know how they're (laughs) supposed to act. But at the same time, we have had an unusually warm fall. It's kind of kept the fishing different. Doesn't mean it's bad. It's been pretty good, but it's kept it different, hasn't it? I would completely agree. I mean, with water temperatures on our metro lakes still in the mid to high 50s, depending upon where you're at, uh, it certainly has delayed those fish setting up in those late fall and early winter type locations. I think what will happen is they're still pretty spread out, but we're going to start probably at the next week when the temperatures start to drop again. We'll probably see maybe an accelerated rate of them catching up and getting where we expect them. But, boy, that doesn't mean that in this beautiful weather you can't go out and catch some fish. Tell us what's going on right now. Yeah, so, for instance, we've been having some really good bites out at Chatfield. The walleye have been a little bit sporadic with some fish found in some deep water as well as still some fish shallow. And as you mentioned, they're very spread out still at the moment. But the bass have been very productive as of late. Um, up shallow, the, the bite on Sankos has been one of my best as far as artificials are concerned. Uh, green pumpkin as well as some shad colors on those four-inch Sankos. We've been fishing them weightless and wacky style very slowly along the bottom. Basically, the, the whole MO has been if you are not getting snagged some you're not fishing it slow enough. So it needs to be right on the bottom, but those four-inch Sankos have been producing some very high-quality smallmouth. But then additionally, while we're throwing those Sankos, I've been throwing out some floats, uh, some slip bobbers with some live fathead minnows, and that's also been picking up a whole bunch of nice bass as well. And this time of year really is a, a time to target those fish out there, and when the walleyes aren't participating... Those bass have been very, very productive. But then as well as those bass, certainly have been catching some nice trout as well at Chatfield. This is a great time of year to get the boat out and do a little bit of trolling. And even from the shore, those nice trout that are in that deeper water in the summertime begin to move up shallower and cruise those edges. So whether you're throwing something like a spoon, a cast master, or a little Tasmanian devil, or even some spinners or jerk baits, those all will work well. And then uh, power bait has been taking some nice fish uh, along the shorelines also. I want to expound on both those real quickly here before we move on to some other bites. And one is the bass. Smallmouth bass are just, uh, they're an aggressive, cooperative fish. And when they get close to shore, whether you're in a boat or on the shore, the action can be just steady. It's a great, great time to be taking kids out fishing. And we have some pretty good-sized smallmouth bass in the metro area. And then you mentioned the trout. You mentioned the trout. The trout by shore, right now, whether you're in a boat or on shore, as this water cools, those trout, not only the ones that are being stocked this fall, which really can be abundant, but there's holdover fish in all these metro reservoirs that go deep, as you said earlier, during the summer. And people forget sometimes that some of these lakes even have trout. But, boy, when they start moving shallow and get aggressive, it's amazing the size of trout you can catch in these lakes, isn't it? Absolutely, and especially at places like Chatfield and Aurora Reservoir that hold good depth. 
um, to allow those trout to be able to survive the summertime, you can have some really nice fish. We've been hearing some reports out at Aurora of shore fishermen catching trout up to seven pounds. They've been really eating a lot of crawfish out there as usual. So two jigs have been really effective out there. But then fly fishermen have also been having good success out of some belly boats, working some sink tips and sinking lines with woolly buggers and slump buster streamers along those edges. And then a lot of times those trout will have a tendency to try a fall spawn in these lakes as well. So sometimes some egg flies underneath some indicators can also be effective. Yeah, it's really it really is a great time to be out and with the weather we've had. But even when it cools down, it's going to be seasonal. It's going to be in the 50s and sunny. What a great time to spend on the boat or shore. Do you have any indication? Do we know, like Cherry Creek, Chatfield, and Aurora, how long the boat ramps will be open? So at least at Cherry Creek and Chatfield, they're going to be open until the end of November, barring some kind of crazy cold temperature that's going to put ice on the lake. I have not heard an official report on Aurora as of yet. And, you know, so there's a chance to get out. And I want to get back to shore fishing and maybe how you approach it on some of these. But before I do that, if you do have your boat out right now, you and I have harped on this and Nate Zielinski and I have harped on this and others. This is such a great time to be scouting for your ice fishing season, which is just around the corner. Absolutely. And even in lakes like uh, up in the mountains, like Antero, when you can still get your, your boat on the lake, I believe that some of those ramps have closed already. But even if you can get out there in a float tube still and uh, get to some of those edges of those weed lines and have those marked, that always is a nice, effective way to go. But then you and I have talked about it where these smallmouth bass and walleyes will sit on some of the same locations that you find them in late November into the early ice season. So if you can find those drop-offs and find those fish where you have better mobility out of your boat and mark those GPS locations, it really can lead to some better fishing without having to search, as well as on some of these metro impoundments when the ice can be a little bit funny sometimes. If you can just walk right to a spot not have to do a lot of walking and searching, sometimes that can be a little bit safer as well. Oh, you're absolutely right. And we'll talk more about that probably in this segment yet. Um, so you said Chatfield, the walleyes have been really spread out. But the bass have been concentrated, and you're getting them both from shore and from a boat. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about Cherry Creek. Is it a similar situation, or are they a little more gathered up there? Still spread out from what I've been seeing. I mean, the fishing has been okay out there. There's been a lot of small fish. The the stocking from this spring really took off well, so there's lots of 8- to 10-inch fish out there. But the the bigger fish have been slightly spread out. We're still catching some, but there's still so many bait fish out there, and they're not very stressed yet. And so when you have bait fish basically across the entire lake, you'll find fish that are spread out in pretty much every depth out there right now. And uh, you can work those edges, especially early morning, if you can get on some of your big consistent structure points like your road that runs north-south from the marina down to the the big point or the uh, tower hump all can be productive to just set up on and have fish come through. Unlike in the summertime, you're not really finding giant schools of fish that you're casting into. When these fish are chasing shad, they're constantly on the move. So a lot of times I set up in a likely location and then have those fish hopefully move through. Uh, your blade baits and your jigging wraps would most certainly be best. As of late, the blades have been a little bit more productive than the jigging wraps have been. Now, when we talk about those presentations, we could spend a couple minutes on those before we move on. Blade baits look kind of are a, a cross between a jigging spoon and a jigging wrap really they're they're a hunk of lead a lot of people whether it's spoons or blade baits or even jigging wraps at least jigging wraps kind of look like a minnow but people get afraid to throw them because they're this hunk of metal but you're not fishing to get them to feed this time of the year you're really going for that reaction bite and that's what the key is right 
Absolutely. So on the blade baits, a lot of times I describe them as a lipless crankbait with no rattle is how the action is. But you're casting them out and letting them sink to the bottom, and then I'm working them back with a yo-yo style retrieve. So I lift up on my rod tip and then reel down a bit, lift up and reel down a bit. Now the blade baits, many times I'm fishing less aggressively than I am a jigging spoon or a jigging wrap. Uh, light little rod tip flicks with about a half a reel crank. And the whole key on all of these presentations, in my opinion, is to lift on slack line. If you reel all the way down to that bait and then lift again, that little nuance a lot of times creates the fish to not bite. And then the same thing goes with the jigging wraps where I'm casting them out and letting them sink down. But rather than a light pull, I'm aggressively snapping the rod like I would with a jigging spoon as well. But then I'm reeling about one crank and then snapping again. And as I mentioned, the whole key is every single time I'm letting that bait fall on slack line completely and then rip up again as they're slack in my line. And many anglers that are used to a summertime walleye bite are uncomfortable with that technique due to the fact that they're not really feeling that fish eat it on the fall. They want to try and have contact with that bait. But if you have contact and let that bait fall on a tight line, the fish just simply don't bite. So as you're ripping up on that next lift, a lot of times that's when those fish will eat it after that slack line fall. So it's critical that that slack line is, is employed on both of those techniques. You know, you talked about a third technique. You talk, I know you use jigging wraps a lot and blade baits. In fact, there's a few of you guys, I could almost tell you what you're going to fish with because they're effective and you're, you're, really good with these, you're really good with these presentations. But I think one that's been ignored for quite a while, which used to be the mainstay, and is starting to make its way back, and the fish haven't seen it as much over the last 10 years, and that's the jigging spoon. Absolutely, and there's a couple different varieties of them. There's heavy coffin-style jigging spoons, and there's a couple that I've been doing well with, particularly the new buckshot coffin spoon from Northland. Uh, That is a heavy, heavy chunk of lead that does not have much of an actual conventional spoon shape to it. And you're fishing those, as I mentioned, just like a jigging wrap. You can vertical jig them, but you can also cast them out and give heavy, aggressive snaps. But then there's also flutter spoons, and Uh, Some of my favorite are some of the Blue Fox variety, but then you have some from PK lures that are flutter spoons, as well as even working a Castmaster at times. But the flutter spoons have more of an actual cup to them, and they fall much slower. And if you especially are having fish underneath balls of bait, like any type of wipers or white bass, a lot of times you can cast those flutter spoons and just purely let them fall and flutter down, and a lot of times those fish will eat it uh, with a fall that's a little more... Uh, of a slow fall than you're finding on any of these other techniques that we're talking about. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, if people want to see some jigging spoons being used, if you go to my YouTube channel, Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom, I have a jigging spoon show that uh, Tom Bruno and I did at Pueblo for In Fisherman that's on my, my channel that kind of describes the spoons. It was filmed quite a few years ago, but it's still pertinent. I have another one that was done on Lake McConaughey, and then I have a couple ice fishing ones, including Glendo with the PK spoons, which we really get into how to use those through the ice. Uh, The spoons, the jigging wraps, the blade baits are just deadly presentations. Before we run out of time, we've talked a lot about the Metro Lakes. What are you hearing up in the mountains? Mountains have still been very productive. Antero especially has been really good lately. I've been hearing guys have been having great success on tube jigs up there, as well as some fly fishermen having some good success. Things like Tasmanian Devils and Castmasters are always a a worthwhile thing to to do as well. Uh, There's been quite a few fish that are running up the dream stream lately. Uh, Definitely been dealing with some some crowds up there as usual this time of year. So if you're planning on hitting the dream, if you can possibly do it on a weekday, a lot of times it creates a, a much more pleasurable environment. But there's salmon as well as browns that are up in there right now with some cutthroats and some rainbows that are behind, so the egg patterns, as usual, are productive. But 
This time of year, I also will do well with coronamids, where you would normally be thinking of a lake presentation, but those coronamids for those browns sometimes can be good just because they're so used to feeding on them in the lake. Uh, but then additionally, the Colorado River, I think, is one that gets overlooked a lot this time of year. Many people float that all summer long, but this time you'll get less uh, angling pressure up there as well as rec- basic recreational pressure. Still tons and tons and tons of resident browns and things like streamers. Some of the, the Sheila sculpins are really, really effective. Various articulated patterns can be good. Egg flies always are high on my list. And if you're a conventional angler, little jerk baits like a Berkeley hit stick are awesome but then also jigs like a uh, twitch tail minnow can be very effective in some of those deeper pools and runs what about the salmon in bodies of water like wolford yep wolford's been very good the salmon are still up there heard reports as of yesterday that guys were catching them pretty well along the shoreline still unlike some of the other salmon runs like on the gunnison those are much later up there and they're still pretty darn fresh right now there's not much rot going on to them at all and along those shoreline edges, you can do really well with the fly rod. Eggs can work well. I'd like stripping clouser minnows uh, to some of those fish. I've caught a lot of fish doing that before. But my number one favorite pattern is to employ a slip bobber with a small tube, like a Berkeley Atomic tube or some of the trout trap stingers tubes and bright orange and pinks. Tipping that with a mealworm or a waxworm is pretty critical, although they're not actually eating. I found that makes a huge difference. And then just work that right in their little water column give that slip bobber a twitch, and you can catch salmon all day long doing that along those shoreline edges. The last thing I want to talk to you about is we're talking about Christmas gifts. We don't need to get specific right now, but everybody who's been out buying gear knows the industry's been playing catch-up since COVID started. Um, if you've got an, an angling enthusiast in the family that you want a Christmas shop for, what's the outlook? Do you need to do it early? Is stuff going to be available? It's all depending upon what you're doing. If you're looking for something very specific, uh, I would certainly be looking to do it right now, especially ice fishing related. There's a lot of containers that are off the coast, off the West Coast right now, and there's multiple large companies that are telling me I might not get stuff until January, so that's a little bit concerning. Reels have been very challenging to get, so definitely look at those. Rods, maybe not so much, depending upon exactly the specifics, but in general, we're doing pretty decent on inventory, but uh, if it's a specific item, particularly ice fishing, I would definitely get on it and see what you can do to get your hands on some st- stock that might have uh, been around still from last year. All right, so if people want more information or if they want to just check you out, where do they find you, Austin? I'm a Discount Fishing Tackle. We're six blocks south of Evans on the west side of Santa Fe. All right, my friend, you enjoy this beautiful weather, and I think we're, uh, we're going to see a weather change probably by Tuesday that's going to actually kick both the fishing and hunting into a higher gear. Should be fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thank you, Austin Parr from Discount Discount Fishing Tackle. Always a tremendous, tremendous resource. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, the folks from St. Pete's Fly Shop in uh, Fort Collins are going to join us, and we're going to talk about the fly fishing in that part of the state. All that and more on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 1600 ESPN. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN. Normally you find us at uh, 104.3 The Fan every Saturday from 9 to 11. Uh, But every now and then we get bumped over here for a football game. So if you are new to the show and liking what you're hearing, join us every Saturday from 9 to 11 over on 104.3 The Fan. We also podcast everything. uh, And we we link to a lot of those podcasts on our, um, on our, our Facebook page, which is uh, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, 
we um we we try to uh we we try to tell you what's coming up on the show. So we'll we'll let you say if there's going to be a special guest or a topic like today I've put up on the the Facebook page about I put it up a couple of days ago about survival and later on in the show I'm going to get to that. Right now let's go to the phones and joining us from St. Peter's Fly Shop is Thomas Worcester. Good morning, Thomas. Morning, Terry. How are we? Oh, I tell you what, it's hard to feel bad when it's 70 some degrees on the 6th of November. It is. It's quite strange, but we won't complain, you know, and I don't think the fish are either. No, and you know, we've been talking a lot of conventional fishing today, and the warm weather has actually made it a whole lot different than it normally would be this time of the year. Mm -hmm. Um, It's still been good, but you have to change your tactics because the fish haven't got into that cooler water fall pattern. Uh, I know we've got some things going on in some of the rivers you fish, but overall, how's the weather been affecting the fly fishing? Uh, weather's been great up here. We've had those early, you know, kind of pushes of some snow here and there. Um, not as much as, you know, we've normally seen, but hopefully that starts to pick up as, you know, our snowpack's pretty important here. Um, but, you know, things in the uh, northern Colorado have been pretty good. Um, it's been a little tough kind of curving people's uh, perceptions of the river itself, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later. But, um, you know, Colorado Parks and Wildlife has done some reports up there. Um, even involves some of our own staff members and some of the shocking sampling surveys and stuff like that. And uh, we've seen a lot of folks thinking that it's, you know, almost impossible to fish the Poudre River, which um, it's kind of far from the truth. Um, there's definitely different sections of river that were hit harder than others, but we're starting to see fish sort of sip, uh, slip into that fall kind of mindset where it's a little more technical. Um, the water's a little lower and it's a little clearer, but it just takes a little bit of adjusting to kind of trick them. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Of course, you're referring to the Poudre had had some tremendous flood activity earlier this year. Some homes were lost. A lot of silt and mud came down. I talked to some of the biologists before they did the testing. They weren't sure what was going to happen if if that silt and ash coming down would suffocate the fish and if we'd have a total loss in the lower Poudre as it came down. But mm-hmm. it turns out, I'm hearing more and more reports that a lot of fish got up in tributaries are working their way back into the river. Why don't you give us a full update? What is the pooter, and does it vary by where you're at on the river? Definitely, and especially this time of the year, I think that becomes uh, even more crucial. Um, you know, as like I said, the water is getting thinner, so um, it's definitely finding those areas that have a little bit more that deeper pool structure, um, which you can find in the lower stretches. Um, right now, we've been recommending um, you know that lower stretch of the canyon, right around you know uh, Picnic Rock. Um, that's definitely a good area if you're looking for a short day trip. But, uh, you know, working up into the mid, um, up near Stove Prairie, um, all those, uh, you know, kind of areas are, are fishing decent. But as you get higher um, up into the areas that those those slides did happen, it does tend tend to change a little bit and fishing becomes tougher. Some of the samples that they took back, uh, you know, reported zero population, um, which, you know, that's definitely true. But sometimes I question whether or not, uh, you know, electroshocking and all that stuff is, the absolutely best form. Um, we've had several customers come in even afterwards saying that they fished that section. Um, you know, finding some fish here and there definitely not easy, um, but it's just trying to shape the perceptions of those things. So, um, you know, definitely in that area where it was affected, it is a little bit tougher to fish. Um, but then you get above that area where that landslide happened, and uh, it's fishing still pretty good. We're seeing, um, you know, some edge ice, stuff like that starting to form. So, we got a couple more weeks before it becomes uh, a little bit more uh, tricky to get in there. But I'd say, uh, you know, if you know, anyone's looking for 
place to go fish right now. Um, I'd suggest up there. Yeah, well, and you mentioned the lower parts of the Poudre are still fishing pretty decent, too. And as that edge ice forms up on the upper section, the lower sections are going to stay pretty fishable for quite some time with the weather we've had. Yeah, especially we do have a small uh, little tailwater, too, so that does help. And, you know, we've also got the Big Thompson, which is a really nice resource to have that wasn't um, necessarily as affected as the, the, the Poudre River. And, you know, it, it acts as a tailwater, especially as you get up to Estes. So... Um, maybe considering that as another option. Um, it's been a good close uh, backdoor, um, you know, that people like to just check out if they haven't or if they're looking for a little bit of a different change of pace. Well, and I've fished both the rivers. Obviously, you and I in the Fort Collins area were kind of sandwiched between those two. And the Big Thompson, you know, I wrote an article for the Denver Post just a few years ago about how well that river had recovered from the massive flooding that it suffered, gosh, but seven, eight years ago now. I can't even remember how long it was. But they did a tremendous job of stream restoration and improvement. And everything I'm hearing about the Big T is there's fish up and down the river, and it does have a lot of public access. Uh, And that tailwater you spoke of, that'll stay good throughout the winter. I've fished, had some of my best fishing in that tailwater below Estes right in January and February when you get a warm day. It can be just phenomenal when those fish, they'll gather in one of those pools. And if you just stay behind them, there's so many fish in one pool sometimes that you don't even spook them when you catch a fish. And sometimes the only reason I move is because I want to try a different area, not because <laughs> I'm not catching fish. It really gets it gets uh, it gets special. But you also mentioned that some of these right now, the water's a little thin and it's a little more technical. And I'm going to admit I struggle a little bit under these conditions. I love it when I can throw a big dry and maybe have a a, a dropper underneath it. Uh, but when you start getting to these small flies, it's a good time to really sharpen your skills. And it takes some expertise, doesn't it? It really does. And it really takes a, a couple small tips and tricks, uh, you know, kind of as a staff here, we try to, you know, educate as much as we can on, you know, the, the, the ways that you can get past some of these struggles that we find in the winter. Um, you know, a lot of people struggle with, you know, ice on their guides, these small little tippets, these small little flies. And um, granted, it's it's not easy. It takes a little bit of adjusting to, but, um, you know, once you kind of get the hang of it and get your process down, um, you know, it's some really great fishing, especially as we're seeing crowds starting to kind of dwindle off. Um, you know, it's a lot more water to kind of pick apart. And if you've got the right tools, it can be some of the best days that you have on the year. Yeah, there's really no reason to put your fly rod away during the winter in Colorado. And we'll get back to a couple other things. But first, I wanted, I wanted to ask you about one area. I know you guys do some drifting on the North Platte and fish up there. What have you been hearing up there? Uh, fishing's been good. The Gray Reef has been, uh, you know, a, a really good, uh, you know, place to kind of t- hang out. It's, uh, you know, Fishing pretty productively as a lot of those fish are, you know, kind of keying in um, on the fact that fall is here. They've got that short window before it gets to the really cold, um, you know, kind of dwindling days. Um, You know, and, you know, the other sections in that area are also fishing pretty good. Um, It's just a matter of getting out there and having the right weather um, and definitely the right rigs. Well, this is another thing I wanted to bring to your attention. I want to kind of change gears on, you know, we've been talking to everybody about Christmas gifts and how you spend the winter. And it sounds early, but with the supply chain the way it is, we're trying to get people up. But one of the things a lot of, whether you're newer, experienced fly fishermen, really turn to as we go into this time of the year is tying flies. Now, yeah. first of all, for new, new uh, fly tires, do you have classes available? And how is the supply chain for those type of products? 
Uh, so supply chain for flat tying products has been uh, decent. Materials have been, um, you know, somewhat hard to source, but they're starting to kind of come back. Um, you know, as far as classes go at the shop, we had a, a, a weird couple years just with, you know, um, all of the regulations in place from COVID, uh, making it a little tougher to do in-classroom activities. Um, but this year we're scheduled to, you know, kind of keep those back on track. Um, we've got several coming up in the next couple weeks, um, and we'll see those roll into, you know, even, uh, say, March. Um, so that's a, you know, definitely a, a good thing to think about, especially, I mean, you mentioned holiday gifts. That's a, you know, a really fun gift to give someone because it kind of really does keep on building on itself. And, um, it's more of a hobby inside of a hobby um, than anything else. So now if somebody's looking to get into fly tying and you want to get either they want a class or somebody wants to give them one, do you, do you recommend they take the class before they buy, you know, they're going to eventually going to have to have a vice and, you know, the all the little tools to go with it and and you can spend as much as you want or you can get by with you know a certain level what do you kind of propose to the entry level fly tire how much do they have to spend and do you usually sell that before or after a class uh you know it kind of depends uh some people start out with like a little uh you know kind of you know entry level vice um that gets the job done myself included i grew up in an area that didn't have really good access to a fly shop so um, it started off as the basics, um, and usually I think that stuff gets purchased after the class. I think uh, that being said, because it's a little bit easier to determine if you uh, do like the activity once you've learned a little bit more about it. Um, but I always recommend if someone takes the class and they say, hey, I really love this, it is worthwhile to invest in that vice um, because it is, you know, the, the production um, component of the fly tying. So. Um, you know, if, if you get out of that or if you know you, you're an arts and crafts kind of person or have a little bit more of that kind of um, creative touch, um, I would definitely suggest thinking about, you know, investing into a, a, a decent vice. And if you do, they'll last you a lifetime. What kind of price range are we talking about to get started tying flies, do you think? Well, I'd say entry level, if you're looking to just get your foot in the door, we do have several uh, kits that are kind of walk out the door starting around like, you know, anywhere from seventy nine ninety five to you know, granted that like $150 range. Um, so I'd say it's a good starting point. Um, but, you know, as far as the vices that I'm talking about, um, you know, it's more or less in that uh, 175 price point for just the vice. Um, and then it's thinking about the tools that you need for it and the different materials. And how is your, you said your supply has been pretty decent. So if somebody's Christmas shopping for those tiny kind of gifts, you can probably help them out. Absolutely. And I'd say even, you know, on the, the, the terminal tackle rod reel side of things, we're running an awesome special on an, uh, an entry-level fly fishing kit here uh, at the shop. And what it is is really, I mean, buying an entry-level kit is, you know, specific to someone that's newer that's getting into it that might benefit from, say, an intro-level class. So with the sale of a, a Reddington Path outfit here at St. Peter's Fly Shop, we're actually giving away a free intro to fly fishing class with it. So um, great holiday gift. You know, it's not only just buying the actual materials or something to actually get them out of the water, but it's teaching them how to use it. So I think that's uh, really important in, in this day and age. Thomas, we are out of time. If people want more information, how do they find you guys? Uh, give us a call, stop by, or uh, visit us on our website. Um, you know, it's easy to easy to give us a ring, so we're never shy. Um, we're always happy to answer questions if you're looking to come up in this area. Um, or just simply wanted to take care of some some of your holiday shopping. But, yeah, always appreciate having us, Terry, and, uh, yeah, we look forward to the next time and chat with everyone. And what is the website? Uh, it's uh, stpeets.com, so S-T-Peets 
com. All right, my friend. We'll talk to you again soon. All righty, Terry. Take care. You bet. Thomas Worcester from St. Peter's Fly Shop. You know, the fly shops, the local shops, we have big box store sponsors, and we believe in them. They have good people take care of it. But the small shops also offer a little bit of things. Sometimes you don't get other places. So don't be afraid to check them out. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, one of our regular contributors, Chad Lachance, is going to talk about cooking. You know, maybe you've got some venison or some fish in the freezer or even fresh, and you're having people over and you want to impress them with some special techniques. Chad and I, we can talk cooking together almost as well as we can talk fishing because we both love to hunt and fish. We also both love to eat. So all that more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 1600 ESPN. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 1600 ESPN. Let's go to the phones. And joining us, as he does every other week, is Chad Lachance. Good morning, Chad. Hey, good morning, Terry. It's a beautiful morning at the lake. It certainly is. And, you know, you and I talk a lot of fishing. We talk a lot of hunting. We love to be out there doing it. But we also like to do some harvest and enjoy that. And we're getting to a time of the year when you may be doing it for just your own family, yourself, or you may be cooking a meal for people stopping by for the holidays. So I understand you're going to share some techniques with us. Well, yeah. You know, if you scroll through uh, my social feeds, any of them, Instagram or Facebook right now, you're seeing a lot of harvest of big game going right now. You know, it's Colorado. We've got, what, nine big game species, and a lot of them are are, are being harvested at this time of year. And myself included, I've, I've been fortunate enough to get a couple of antelope and a whitetail. And so – uh, it's time to eat some of that stuff. And one of, in my opinion, the best ways to cook any sort of game meat, uh, particularly red meat, but also rabbits and squirrels, uh, things like that, uh, is to braise it. And braising or stewing, two, two slightly different things, but similar, are fantastic ways to develop a ton of flavor, to also make as little or almost no waste at all with your game meat, which is important. We'll talk about that more in a second. Um, and just generally make make venison or, or, you know, antelope, whatever. It tastes very, very good. It's extremely tender. And basically the goal we're headed for is your grandma's pot roast. You know, that's kind of the classic thing where you've got a, a deep, you know, dark, rich braising liquid and a very tender meat that just pulls apart. And a key part of the whole thing is the connective tissue that cooks down into it. And uh, all that uh, connective tissue, the collagen and, and uh, gelatin that comes out of tendons and joints and bone marrow uh, is really critical in making that dish taste good. So, you know, yesterday I took the entire I took an entire shoulder and an entire hind uh, off of a, of a white-tailed deer. So one whole hind quarter and one whole shoulder with the shank attached and rubbed it down. It was fresh right off the deer. So I aged it for four or five days in the fridge with a heavy-duty rub on it and just let it sit there with uncovered and let it breathe liquid out of it and let it form a pellicle, which is something I'm sure you're familiar with, Terry, for if you get ready to smoke something, you want it to kind of be really dry on the surface so it'll pick up a lot of flavor. Uh, let it let it sit in the fridge that way and then put it on the pellet smoker over a blend a blend of pellets and smoke it at 225 degrees for like four and a half or five hours. And what that, what you end up with is a piece of meat that's not quite cooked all the way through, uh, but has developed a ton of flavor. 
and it's still got the bones in it. It's got everything in it, all the connective tissue and all that. So then I'll take it out of the smoker, put it in a big turkey pan, like a big aluminum turkey roasting pan, and then form a braising liquid. And that liquid that goes in there with it uh, will generate a ton of flavor and moisture, and it will basically absorb all of the uh, all of the connective tissue that melts when you do a long-term braise. So the difference between braising and stewing is the amount of liquid in there. Typically, braising is going to be somewhere you're going to cover around a quarter to a third of the depth of whatever meat you have in your pan and then seal it up real tight. That can be done in a turkey pan or if it will fit. Uh, you can do it in a Dutch oven or any big heavy bottom pan. But at the end of the day, you want to cover maybe a third of the meat with liquid. I will always add a bunch of vegetables of some sort. Uh, typically, it's going to be carrots, onions, celery, bell peppers. Uh, I'll, I'll add a jalapeno or two. I'll add garlic. Um, you know, you can add whatever kind of vegetables like that you want. The one thing you don't want to add is anything starch. You don't want to put a potato or anything like that early in the process because it will break down completely. So you don't you don't want that to happen. So anyway, a third of the meat depth, a bunch of a bunch of vegetables in there. Um, seal it up real tight, put it in a relatively cool oven, say for me it's 300 degrees, and leave it in there for four or five hours. Sealed up real tight, it won't lose any liquid, and when you take it out, you'll be able to grab a hold of the bones if it's done right and just pull them straight out of the meat. Uh, kind of like if you think about a well-prepared baby back rib or something like that, the meat will just literally pull out. So I don't have any waste. And anyone that's ever trimmed up a, a, a carcass on their own, a big game deer or something like that, it takes a while to take a shoulder apart get all the connective tissue out of it and package it and freeze it. But if you do it this way, you literally grab the shoulder blade, pull it out, all the connective tissue dissolves into your dish. And so therefore you get all the nutrients from it. And oh, by the way, it tastes delicious. So the key can be in the braising liquid. For me, that's going to be a combination of beef stock, coffee, red wine. Typically it's going to have some Worcestershire sauce, maybe some soy sauce, definitely some fish sauce. Um, stuff to develop umami flavors in there. And Terry, you've eaten some of my uh, my braised venison before. One of my secrets is always to put anchovy paste as well as mushrooms in there because of the earthiness of the mushrooms and the umami from the anchovy or uh, yeah, anchovy paste. It, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but believe me, it makes for really good gravy that way. And, well, and like I said, the oh, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to ask you before we go on with two. You know, you talked about you know people freeze their meat and things. Do you try to make this before you freeze the meat, do you, or do you use frozen meat at times, and how much difference does it make in the flavor? I do it. You can do it with frozen meat, no problem. I, I do it with fresh, fresh. And the reason I do that is then when I package it and put it in the freezer, I package it in however much serving sizes I want, and I can just pull it out and thaw it out, and I can make a batch of mashed potatoes and put it over that. I can make some rice. I can make butter noodles, whatever to go with it. So I have my dish, you know, my meat dish is done. All the hard work's done and it freezes beautifully. And one of the things I do with it is give it to my farmer buddies to let me hunt on their ground. So I'll bring it back out and give them a, you know, two pounds of fully prepared venison um, because that way there's no work involved. Right. So that works really good. And the, the big thing is, Normally, if I take, let's say, a shoulder off a white-tailed deer, I'm going to have like 30% of that waste. By the time I trim it down and get it where it's it's reasonable that I can cook it, uh, you're going to have a tremendous amount of waste. But when you do it the way I do it, 
<clears throat> the way a lot of people do it these days, which is cook it whole, and that bone just pulls out. You have no trim time. You have almost no waste at all, and it makes for some really delicious shoulder meat that is just absolutely tender and, and wonderful. Uh, so good. The difference I want to point out real quick between braising and stewing is the amount of liquid. Stewing, you would typically fully submerge something, so you wouldn't cook it as long. Um that's important to keep in mind. But in both cases, braising or stewing, you need to develop a, a good browning uh, on the meat ahead of time. So when it comes to the, the whole hindquarter, like I just did, like we were just talking about, I, I let that happen in the smoker. So put that in the smoker and it gets a, a good brown crust on it that way. But if you're not going to do that, then I need to either brown it in a skillet, a cast iron skillet, something like that, in fat. But I really need to brown it first before you braise it because that's where a lot of your depth of flavor is going to come from. And uh, it's going to make a big, giant difference in the final product of it. It's the level that you brown the meat. Do it carefully. You don't want to burn it, but you want to take it right to the edge of burning and brown it evenly all the way around. Very important. The smoker does a great job with that because, obviously, it's just sitting on a wire rack, and the smoke will do the work for you. Plus, it's a unique flavor. But it's definitely not a problem to take maybe the shoulder and cut it half crossways and, and I've done that as well. That way it'll fit in a Dutch oven and you can do it in a you know big cast iron Dutch oven that way. But the key is you got to brown it first and then you, you do your complex braising liquid of some sort, focusing on the flavors of umami and then low and slow. No, I couldn't agree more. Sometimes, and I don't do a lot of slow cooking like you do. I'm more fast and, and hot. But a lot of times if I am going to cook like a brisket or something, I'll I'll brown it on my grill for a short time, but with some high heat to develop that crust. And that crust really develops what you said, drying the surface of that meat ahead ahead of time really helps you develop that crust and getting some rub into it. All those things give you that, 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 that crustiness on the outside. The other thing I think that you kind of went past, you talk about it all the time, the vegetables you put in. I think people in their mind think there's going to be vegetables all over in this braising liquid, but those cook down almost to a sauce, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's what I was doing right before I called in watching the clock is that braising liquid I reserved from that yesterday. It's got all that onion, carrot, bell pepper, you know, garlic, celery, blah, blah, blah in there. And I take all of that stuff and hit it with an immersion blender because it's so soft, as you mentioned. It doesn't have the mouthfeel you want. Like you put a big chunk of carrot in your mouth and just smash it with your tongue. That's not very appealing. So, but if you take that immersion blender and blend it into the gravy, now you have a all the nutrients from it as well, and you also get the body that comes with blending all those in there. So your gravy gets much thicker, and I don't have to add a roux, which is a which is flour and butter mix cooked down. That makes my gravy a little more healthy, a little bit uh, a little more uh, diet friendly, let's just say. But also, you get all those nutrients from the celery and the carrots and all that that I mentioned that stay in there. And again, no waste. So that's the volume of your gravy as well. So if I'm going to – and then if I want – let's say I want carrots or I want, uh, you know, classic potatoes like you might get in a on a pot roast. Well, then with, say, an hour to go in my braising process, maybe I'll braise it for, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe three hours, and then I'll chunk my carrots and, and – uh, or some more carrots, I should say, and some potatoes, throw them in there with it and let them cook for the last hour. But if you let them braise for three or four hours, as you mentioned, they will they will cook down to mush – and uh, for me, instead of straining them out, which a classic French chef would strain them out, I'm an old school Western guy. I blend them in. And uh, and then when I get ready to package this meat to freeze it, because I, I ended up with about 10 pounds of, of pulled venison from this late yesterday, I'll put it together in two pound uh, 
you know, bowls, basically, uh, containers I can freeze it in, and then I will ladle a big thing of that gravy right over the top of it and then freeze it that way. And when you thaw it out, it will thaw in its own gravy, and it will be absolutely delicious. Now, my friend, as you do different types of meat, I know you hunt elk, you hunt deer, you hunt whitetail and mules, you hunt other small game. Do you change up the vegetables or the seasoning depending on the meat, or you kind of have just a standard that you like for everything? I'm pretty close when it comes to red meat. Uh, my big thing is a mix of, of salty, sweet, sour, and bitter. So I like to have coffee, red wine, beef stock uh, for sure. And then you could put a little bit of balsamic vinegar, something like that in there as well, just a touch. But if I'm going to go with something that's a lighter meat, let's say I want to braise rabbit, which is one of my favorites. Uh, at that point, I'm going to use chicken stock instead of beef stock. I'm going to use white pepper instead of black pepper because I like the, the nuances of ground white pepper uh, with white meat. Uh, I'm going to use some sort of a cognac or a white wine, a little bit lighter. So basically, I'm just going to lighten all the flavors up. I would treat a rabbit, if, if someone's never cooked a rabbit, I would treat it like a roasting chicken. And uh, and if you do that, you're going to get, you know, delicious flavor with it. But that all end up with more of a whiter base, just like you would expect from maybe a chicken pot pie. And uh, and that's really delicious as well. Rabbit's fantastic. Squirrel, I would treat basically the same as a rabbit. It's kind of somewhere in between. It, it reminds me of dark meat turkey. And if you haven't eaten squirrels, people are underestimating how delicious a big fat fox squirrel is because uh, there's, there's a fair bit of meat on them for no bigger than they are. And their meat is is delicate. It's just like dark meat turkey. It reminds me if you're if you like dark meat like a turkey drumstick, you would love uh, squirrel. And that's one that a lot of guys don't mess with. And because they're small, just like a rabbit, you don't have to braise them very long. You braise them for an hour or something like that. Versus you know a, a twelve pound quarter or you know twelve pound round off a deer, you got to braise for a long time. But the rabbit or squirrels, a couple of them, you don't have to do that. And those I always do bone in because you want all all these items. I do bone in because you want that connective tissue. My braising liquid cooled overnight this morning, Terry. It was about the consistency of pudding because of the connective tissue in it that, that gelled overnight. So when you heat it back up, it melts back down. And it, I'll tell you what, it's got a, just a great mouthfeel, and it's, it's real good with red wine, Terry. Well, and I was just going to mention that some wine pairings. Um, when you start out, if you're going to put the mushrooms in and the different things that give you the umami, and if people don't realize that's when Chad was talking about the fish sauce and the soy sauce, things that give you kind of a different umami flavor, you're, you could, your starting point, if there's a lot of mushrooms and earthiness, is probably a good Pinot Noir, one that has some body to it, not a light fruity one, and that earthiness of those mushrooms will just blend right in. If you're going to a little darker meat, a little more rich sauce, a little uh, cab is great. But if, like you said, you like to throw a jalapeno in once in a while, if it's got a little spicy to it, try a Malbec. You'll be surprised. Malbec is kind of between Merlot and Cab, but it handles spice really well. And it can be just a tremendous red meat wine. Last thing, Chad, before I let you go, I know we talk about this cooking all the time. People always want more information. They love it. You have a lot of this on your social media. Is that right? Yes, sir. There's a whole bunch of videos on the Fishful Thinker YouTube channel with uh, Fish and Game. Uh, love people to check those out. Send us questions. You know, the older I get, the more I, I, I really like to fish. And I've been jo- or to cook, I should say. And I've been joking for a long time. When they kick me out of the fishing business, I want to get in the cooking business because I just really enjoy doing it and I enjoy sharing it with people. 
And uh, it's kind of what brings the outdoors in, uh, in full circle, as you're well aware. So if they can get that, you know, get a bunch of recipes on our YouTube channel. I post them periodically on, on Facebook. On my personal page, I talk a lot about meals while I'm making them as well. So if folks want to check those out, it's at Fishful Thinker uh, or at Chad Chance on both of those. YouTube is, is at Fishful Thinker, and we would love people to check that out. And also, real quick, Terry, we are working on guide permits for next year. We're going to start booking trips for May and June of next year here pretty quick. And lastly, season 26, believe it or not, kicks off the last week of December here, Terry. So, uh, Fishful Thinker Television, once again, our 14th year on TV. All right. Now, if you uh, is there ways to pick it up? Uh, can you stream it, or is it just altitude? How can they pick it up? You can get it on World Fishing Network. It streams there in several different places. Also on Roku, on um, uh, Outdoors America, uh, which is a good place to look it up there. If you Google a streaming service, you'll find a bunch of them. We stream in about 15 or 20 different places these days. I can't rattle them all off the top of my head. But, uh, but yes, we do stream across the world. I get weird questions from all over the world these days, which is kind of fun. All right, my friend, you and I need to get on the water maybe one time before it freezes, but certainly next spring. Yes, sir, and uh, I'm actually going to launch the boat here in about 20 minutes. All right. We'll talk to you soon, Chad. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Terry. All right. You know what? People love when we talk cooking a game, but uh, it's so much fun to enjoy what you harvest. I'll tell you what. We're going to take a time out. We come back. I'm going to share a few tips on outdoor survival before we wrap things up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN. All right, we're back, and we're going to wrap up Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. But a few things I want to cover. One is next week we will actually be on location at the Jackson Fort Collins. Uh, come by and say hi. I usually hang around for an hour or so after the show. Love to talk fishing, hunting, love to meet the listeners. If you are new to the show and you like what you heard here, uh, we're usually on the fan from 9 to 11, 104.3 The Fan. We jump over here occasionally during games. So follow us back over there and follow us on Facebook. And uh, Facebook is Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. And I want to talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but I got a confession. Chad got me hungry talking cooking last time. So I'm going to head home, and I'm going to throw some oysters on the grill. Now, I have to admit, I didn't harvest the oysters. I bought them at a local fishmonger, but... Uh, they're going to be so good. And I love when we cook game and fish out on the grill. With Karen and I, I just love that with a glass of wine. But I promised I was going to talk some survival. Now, there's so many misconceptions about survival. And this, you know, it's about both comfort and survival. Uh, of course, needing to dress properly. We don't have time to get into the layers right now. Except don't wear cotton. Don't ever wear cotton underwear, cotton t-shirt, cotton briefs, cotton socks when you're going outdoors, especially in this time of the year, but anytime if you're headed up in the mountains. Cotton's about the only place that's good is in a warm ocean front or around your house. It's very comfortable. It'll kill you on the updoor. It'll give you hypothermia. It gets wet, stops insulating. If I could give you one uh, tip about dressing properly, that would it. Have no cotton on when you head head up into the high country or out on a fishing, hiking, hunting trip. A lot more people are spending time in the outdoors year-round. It's beautiful in Colorado. We get some great days where, you know, it's going to be 50 degrees and you can go up to Rocky Mountain National Park and go snowshoeing, and it's just going to be gorgeous. But whether you're cross-country skiing, hunting, going for a hike, uh, winter camping, you can get in trouble. You can get lost. You can... 
you know, you can get injured. Something can happen that can really put you at risk. And we would rather give you good information that will keep you an inconvenience from turning into a tragedy. And that's really what we try to do. And a lot of it is basics. Now, used to do a survival show once a year. We'd spend an hour or two just talking with different experts around the country. I've been part of Search and Rescue. But let me give you a couple things. First, I just took a column I wrote for the Denver Post and put it on our Facebook page, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook. We get into detail on some of these tips there. Go take a look. It'll only take you 10 minutes to read that column. It might save your life. But a couple things. We used to ask people, what are the necessities when you go up? And they'd always say food and water. Well, if you go by the rule of threes, which search and rescue and outdoor survival people kind of live by, is you can go three minutes without air. You can go about three hours exposed to the elements, and that's depending on dress and shelter. You can go about three days without water, and you can go about three weeks without food. So those things, although being hydrated and having energy from food will help you feel better and do better, they're probably not going to kill you before you die of other means or before search and rescue finds you. So go out, read that article. The one I have on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook gives you a lot of great tips, tells you the things you need to have that will get you through both short-term and long-term survival. I want to thank Michael keeping us on the air today and man in the phones. I want to thank Karen for putting this show together and making me sound like I was intelligent. And I want to thank all the callers and people who joined us and all of you people in the audience. Uh, Please uh, join us next week on the fan from nine to 11 on Terry Wickstrom outdoors.